everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lees with another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast uh, brought to you by our good friends at Gong, Lead 411, and Vidyard um, as you move into 2021 and even beyond. If you don't have these tools, if you don't have things like this to help support your efforts in the funnel, then you're certainly missing out. So please sure, be sure to take a look at all of them. And actually, we've got someone here who can even talk about this a little bit um, in terms of some data. Uh, so I'm super excited to uh, have Ray Reich join us. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of RevOps Squared. And I'll let him explain what that is and maybe where you might have known about him, but you didn't know you knew about him. So go ahead, Ray, to let everybody know what you're up to and all those kinds of things. Well, Richard, Scott, thank you so much for inviting me to the Surf and Sales podcast. I was telling my family at dinner last night, I feel like I got invited to the um, cool kids group by being in here. So thank you so much. And RevOps Squared, what is it? It's really a lifelong passion of mine. I've always been talking about the need for better alignment between marketing, sales, and it used to be professional services, now customer success and services. And I thought the way to do that was have an integrated organization with an underlying integrated platform that starts at the data level, goes up to the process level, and then to the business intelligent analytics. So RevOps Squared is really the manifestation of that vision. And I'm starting with providing the world's largest database of B2B SaaS KPI benchmarks so that operators, whether that's the CEO, CFO, or the go-to-market team leaders, can see how their performance measures up to similar like company cohort groups. So that's what are you talking about? Is. Are you talking, Ray? Are you talking about performance in terms of actual, like, what is our CAC versus Zooms? What is our LTV of customer versus, you know, XYZ company? Or are you talking, if I dial it way back, are you talking about performance in terms of does my executive team even freaking understand and know what those metrics are and what they mean? Yeah, that's actually a, a really insightful question. So it starts with those top five key performance indicator groups that investors use to establish an enterprise value on your entity. Those are things including the rule of 40. The rule of 40 looks at top line ARR or revenue growth. It also looks at profitability. So you add revenue growth to EBITDA or free cash flow. So that's the first metric. And to your point, Scott, when we benchmark companies, we also show them exactly how to calculate these KPIs. So they're calculating them based upon industry standards. So first we start with rule 40, then we go to customer acquisition cost. We look at both the CAC payback period, which tells a CEO or CFO how long it takes to pay back the cost of acquiring every one new customer. And the benchmark right now says you should have about an 18 month payback period for your expenses versus revenue generated. The second thing we look at is something called CAC ratio. And the CAC ratio looks at for every dollar of expenses you put into sales and marketing, predictably how many dollars of ARR can you actually generate? Whether that's new name customer ARR or if it's um, expansion ARR from your customer base. Third thing we look at is retention. And when COVID hit us back in March, everyone was really concerned about retention and a lot of people would be canceling their subscriptions. And retention has went from being the number two KPI that investors use to value your company to the number one. 
And there's two types. There's gross dollar retention and net dollar retention. I won't bore you there. And then we look at gross margin, which is the ultimate cash generation engine that investors look at future cash flow from your business. And then the CAC, where it's the customer lifetime value to CAC ratio. So a lot of details there, Scott, but that's kind of what we do. That's good because this is this is the stuff that I think nobody teaches us, right? Particularly, well, I, I can I can tell you firsthand that nobody teaches you this stuff. It's not like I became a VP of sales one day and I got pulled into the classroom and the founders or the VCs were like, "Let me tell you about the top five business metrics." Right. No. What, is, what is the order of them, Ray? As a, you know, because of December twenty twenty one, right? Is twenty or December twenty twenty. You know, what is, as the VCs are looking at this stuff and the people who are listening, what is number one, two, three, four, and five in priority, you think? Yeah, it's hard to rank order in kind of in a black and white world. But what I found, Richard and Scott, was if I surround myself with people a lot smarter than I am, I can actually sound smart sometimes. So I asked Byer and Dieter. Oh, you're here, Ray. You're here to make us sound smart. So um, on my podcast, the Metrics are Major podcast, I invited Byron Dieter, who Byron is at Bessemer Ventures, has had more SaaS company IPOs than any other um, VC. And he's really the founding father of the 10 laws of SaaS, now the 10 laws of cloud. And I asked him that question. He goes, you know, historically over the last few years, it's been all about top line growth. So ARR growth, which is a component of the rule of 40, trumped everything. Yeah. But now retention, especially in the last nine months, has become even more important than growth. It's not that we don't want to look at growth, but if your net dollar retention is at 110 to 120% and you're at 40% growth rate, you're going to be valued two to three times higher on re- the enterprise value to revenue multiple than if you're a 100% net dollar retention and still at 40% growth. So net dollar retention is trumping everything right now. Yeah. And I I actually, it's interesting to hear you say that in the last nine months or so, because I have felt that to be the case for almost four years, maybe five, actually more like five years, where where the shift was moving from ARR to net retention. Um, So it's interesting to hear hear that perspective. I I definitely agree with... uh, with the importance of it being number one right now. Hey, Scott, I think you're right. I think the shift has been going on for more than nine to 12 months. But I think when COVID hit, it was a catalytic moment to say, yeah, we're reducing our investment in new customer acquisition and we're doing everything to protect every customer we have on contract. And that's why it became number one recently. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about a, a metric that you, that you didn't mention. And, and I didn't know about this metric, one, two, three, through the first four VP of sales roles that I, that I had. Heard about it in number five and, and, and number six. Um, and it's called magic number. Can you tell everybody about the magic number, Ray? And by everybody, I mean Richard, because I bet he, Richard doesn't know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So the CAC ratio is the inverse of mag- magic number. The magic number was first popularized by Josh James. Josh was the founder and CEO of Omniture, which was ultimately acquired by Adobe and currently the founder and CEO of Domo. And what the magic number essentially does is measures the efficiency of your revenue growth, your recurring revenue growth on a quarter over quarter basis. 
And then you divide that by your marketing and sales expenses. Now, it's really important, though, that you look at your revenue growth as current quarter minus previous quarter. You multiply that by four to annualize it. And then you divide that by the sales and marketing expenses from the previous quarter. And what this is going to tell you is a little bit about how efficiently you're growing your recurring revenue as measured against your marketing and sales expenses. And traditionally, um, wisdom would say at around 0.75 SAS magic number and above, that means you're efficient and you should continue to invest and even accelerate investment and revenue growth. In fact, if you're at above one, then you should think about doubling down and really going for it. However, if you're below 0.75 as a magic number, especially if you're like 0.50 and below, you should stop any incremental investment. And in fact, you may even want to decrease your current sales and marketing investment to generate revenue growth and look at those process steps that maybe are impacting your SaaS magic number. And once again, I use CAC ratio, which is really just the inverse. And more investors today are using CAC ratio and CAC payback period versus the SaaS magic number. What did he say, Scott? How would I understand? Well, that? no, the, the, oh, I will try my best because one of the things that I'm decent at is dumbing things down uh, that, that are that are decently complicated. The, the beauty of the magic number issue, so I would assume that's why. <laughs> so that's all they. That's what the paper means if you went to Arizona State, Richard. Uh, the beauty of of the magic number is, and Ray mentioned this, it tells you what to do. It tells you whether you're not ready to invest more or whether you should really evaluate and kind of kind of hold firm and dig in a little bit, or if you need to invest more in sales and marketing. So it acts as a gas pedal for you based on, you know, what the, what the number is. And, and Ray spit out a couple of numbers. I've seen them, you know, less than, less than half. You're not ready. Uh, more than three quarters of a point hit the go button. And so you, you present the number, you know, to the board or, or to the investors or sometimes, you know, to the CEO and they're like, Jesus Christ, why aren't you guys spending more money on, on sales and marketing right now? So that's the beauty of it. I mean, is it tells you to stop, to evaluate or to go. Yeah. And Scott and Richard, I'm more of a CAC ratio guys and I'm a benchmark guy, right? So if you look at the magic number in the inverse, which is CAC ratio in 2019, it would cost about a dollar and 50 cents of sales and marketing expenses to get every dollar of ARR booked. In the first half of 2020, that went up about 20%. So now you're looking at over $1.70 of sales and marketing expenses to get every dollar of ARR. And most investors will say, if you're at $2 or above of expenses to get every dollar of ARR, you need to really slow down. If you're in that $1.50 to $1.80 range, you're probably still okay. Does that mean... Does that mean that, hey, you need to slow down and do these types of things? Or does it also mean, you know, this is a good run, but you're never going to get it lower. And so, you know, your product market fit just isn't right now or 
Like, what does it really signal when you say slow down? Yeah, you've got to look at the inputs to whether it's the magic number or CAC ratio. So here's the three kind of top things. If your CAC ratio is too high that you should look at. Number one, you should really look at your stage by stage conversion up to opportunity close rate. Because if you're at a 18, 22% close rate, or you've got 50% drop off between stage one or stage two in your funnel, that's going to dramatically increase your CAC ratio. Number two, you should look at what your pricing and your ACV, your average annual contract value is, because there is a simple way to decrease your CAC and that's to increase your price. And if you move from a feature function orientation to maybe more of a business value orientation, you'd be amazed. I've seen companies increase their ACV by 20 to 30% over a matter of two quarters. It's just meaning and, the and by, and by, pitch. Yes, but okay. you also have got to get the buy-in from the, the sales leader and the sales team to increase the price. That's where everybody starts to freak out. All the sales, all the VPs of sales right now just freaked out and they're like, oh shit, if you raise our prices, I'm never going to be able to close the deal. And all their reps are having a full-blown panic attack. But it always works. It, it, it does. It, al it always works. I, I would tell you a story, and this was, you know, quite a while ago, but it was in a recurring revenue model. And the company wasn't growing very much. And it was a $150 million company where I headed up worldwide operations. And we had 10,000 customers. And I knew the industry pretty well. So I said, we're going to raise everybody's price by 8%. And the CFO looked at me, and this was existing price, by the way. This wasn't even new customer acquisition. He looked at me and said, are you crazy? The attrition is going to be dramatic. And I said, based upon my projection, we're going to see about a 2% to 3% increase in attrition. With an 8% price increase, you're going to automatically add at least 5% to your top line revenue. And it's, it's exactly what happened. So sometimes you need to be bold. This is great. I, so a couple of you know, the simple questions that Richard wants to ask, um, you know, how come people aren't trained on this? Like, you know, Scott's been at, you know, he said he's been at three or four different places, never heard of the magic number in the first place, but then also probably had to figure this out, right? Um, why aren't people- Number one, it's effing hard, man. And when I, the reason I you say can that- coach, by is... the way, it's up to you, but you're, you're, you know, we're surfers. So, you know, it's okay. Okay, well, I'll just use that for now, but it, it is. And it starts with number one, a lack of metrics alignment organizationally. And what do I mean by that? The board of directors that your CEO, CFO, and hopefully your head of sales, head of marketing, um, you've had a product get a present to once a quarter, they don't have the same metrics that they're measuring and they're not aligned. Your CEO is talking to your board of directors and investors about, Rule of 40, CAC ratio, net dollar retention. And then in comes the head of marketing. And head of marketing is talking about what? Well, this is how many unique visitors I had to the website. Here's how many MQLs I generated. Here's hopefully the pipeline that resulted those from MQLs. And then the head of sales comes in and talks about, well, here's the amount of ARR we closed this quarter. And here was our close rate. And here was maybe our opportunity Why? final conversion rates. But why aren't the VCs teaching them this to their people, right? You go out and you get seed funding, right? Why isn't your seed funding VC educating, hey, 
go focus, go, you know, you're still at the, you know, you're still just trying to expand and go greenfield, but eventually we're going to start talking about these terms. Well, I can't speak for the investors, but you know, they're on at least 10 to maybe 15 boards. They're in a board meeting for two hours every quarter. Right. There's so much content that's being presented. There's not a lot of time to have these strategic discussions or educational sessions. There's just not enough time. No one makes the time. Yeah, I think, but I think that's, you know, and I know some VCs, I'm sure you know some too, where they're like, okay, let's bring all of our CEOs together. and We're going to teach them all this because we've got this many at this stage of the phase and they could do that. Like, look, we're learning all this in, you know, the short version is we're doing this in 45 minutes. You could probably teach this in an hour and a half or two hours, you know, to the point that they need to start understanding it. Well, well, I'm going to take it to another step, but I don't think CEOs and CFOs, a lot of these, um, SaaS CEOs are first-time CEOs, right? Especially if they're a founder. And they don't even know the metrics that well, and they're learning as they go. And then the last thing I'll say to this is, and Scott, I'll kind of point this towards you. So I talked about CAC ratio, which is the inverse of the magic number. All my clients, I'm talking about, you're going to create a sales CAC ratio, a sales development CAC ratio, a marketing CAC ratio, and even a customer success CAC ratio. And you as the leaders of each group own the company CAC ratio. And now you have the direct input from your function by having a marketing CAC ratio. And that is a type of education that I'm trying to do for our clients to make sure that there's alignment. Because the biggest issue I see today for sales and marketing teams is lack of alignment because they have a lack of shared goals. Well, Ray is preaching to the choir right now <laughs> i can hear trumpets i can hear trumpets playing right right now richard absolutely uh yeah i mean ne- never not in any org that i was in was the the cac ratio spelled out almost by role or by department like that it was always all rolled up into one of which i as the head of sales fell on the sword for Every single time. You're exactly right. And that's why for 20 years, I've always had sales marketing and services or success. I went to a job to work with a couple of former buddies about three years ago. And it was the first time I didn't have marketing and it's always sales. And we had all kinds of pissing contests because I'm like, the leads aren't of high quality, which means my pipeline coverage ratio had to be up dramatically and we missed our new ARR number for two quarters. And I'm like, can we please just share the same goals? And I couldn't get our CEO to see that we needed to have integrated and aligned goals. Yeah. And that's the CEO of a $20 million company, man. Yeah. What, Scott, now that you know this stuff, and I don't mean just from today, right? Like, you know, cause you, you've learned it over the last few years. What are, are there one or two things different that you would have positioned even at you know, even before Qualia, right? Uh, when you were at Outbound Engine, that would have helped you? Or, or maybe here's a better question. What advice would you give to other sales leaders who are trying to understand this and how they use this knowledge in a board meeting so they don't have to fall on their sword? Well, it's, it's so interesting because so many people don't know that much about these business metrics and this terminology and that kind of thing. It almost begs the question like, well, how important is it really then? Because so many people have been successful without understanding it 
So that's the first hurdle, I think, that you've got to get over because it's sort of been proven that it's not essential for a head of sales or maybe a head of marketing to have full comprehension of these metrics because that has been owned by the CFO or the CEO. Um, so that, that, that's where I would start is sort of just stressing like why it's important, not just for you in this particular role, but maybe why it's important for you in your entire career and, and what you want to do as your career kind of advances. If you want to build your own, you know, SaaS company one day, if you want to be involved in these kind of super high level intelligent conversations, if you want to be in the boardroom and be able to speak to, uh, to these things. So I'd start there. Number two, there is a relationship that does not get talked about hardly at all among sales leaders. And that is the sales leader to CFO or VP of finance relationship. Um, I had zero interaction four out of six times that I was a head of sales, VP of sales, whatever the hell my title was. The fifth time I ended up becoming friends with the CFO. And this is where I learned and started to hear about things like the magic number. And I learned more of these terms and kind of committed myself to at least being, you know, smart enough to be dangerous with some of these metrics. Okay. And I had a good relationship, uh, you know, with our CFO, um, you know, at, at Qualia, my, my sixth time. So I think a, a, a VP of sales should work to build a relationship with the CFO and understand their world and the terms that they're communicating in and why they matter and get a little coaching there. That's the place that I would go, you know, when, when I was having lunch with, with, you know, nobody, I'd be like, well, I should go ask the, you know, the CFO if he wants to go to lunch, see if I could pick his brain for 45 minutes and even learn one thing. Right. And I might, it might take me 500 lunches to learn what the hell the magic number means, but I was, you know, trying to do that. So I think just, Getting over yourself in that, yeah, you can be successful without knowing it, but there's reason to know this kind of information and then build a bridge and, and work on having a relationship with the CFO. I would have proactively started to do that sooner. And, and I will add one thing. You as a sales leader are going to have to be the one to start that relationship. The CFO is not going to be the one to you know come across the aisle and be like, hi, I'm Scott, the CFO. Not necessarily their, their style. That's got to be on us. So I, those are the things I would add, Richard. Ray, what, what would you, I'm now turning this into a Ray and Scott interview. Anything you would add to that or something that Scott, well, not intentionally missed or overlooked, but is there something else you would add? I, I think I would add two things. So, you know, over the last 20 years, your goal as a sales rep might be to become the SVP of sales. And it was as much about being able to drive closes and revenue as anything else. As you went up to SVP, it was about organizational development, um, being able to forecast accurately, et cetera. But in today's recurring revenue world and this new revenue operations, this integrated world that I envision, you want to become a chief revenue officer. And to be a chief revenue officer, it takes a different skill set than an SVP of sales. You need to understand the entire customer life cycle. That means you need to understand the measurements of success and operating profitability from a marketing perspective, from a sales perspective, and from a customer success, which means acquisition metrics, retention metrics, and expansion metrics. So I think the bar has been raised, Scott, because the next step now is to become that CRO. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the 
the interesting thing too is that difference between the CRO and the VP of sales, right? Or the SVP of sales. Um, talk more about that Delta. Cause we're seeing, this is where, you know, you're starting to see VPs of sales or SVPs of sales getting topped out by a CRO because someone else has done it, mm -hmm. right? You know, you know, in, in, in a non-offensive way, Scott can get you to zero to 25 million. Then they want to bring in a CRO who can take you to a hundred or public, yeah. right? And how, how, does, how does that guy, how does that man or woman who's in that SVP role prove to the organization that, wait a minute, I got you here. I understand this data. I can get you there. It's a little bit like it's your pedigree. It's like, yeah, I went to MIT, so I must be smart because I speak a certain way. If you speak Scott, a certain way. there it is. Your ASU degree didn't help. <laughs> oh, God. I, I'm, I'm, I'll try not to. I'm going to try to let Ray finish his thought. Well, you know, I'm married to a woman with three degrees from MIT, so I learned her language, right? But anyhow, um, so it's that A, always B, B, L, learning. Always be learning about what the head of marketing does. So if you're the director of enterprise sales or the VP of sales, you should understand how are they being measured? How do they think? Have that discussion with the CFO, like Scott said. So learn about how they make strategic decisions. How do they make those investment decisions? And have those discussions at the executive table. When you start speaking like a top senior executive, people are going to hear you differently and they're going to treat you differently. And most importantly, when you're in that board meeting with your 10 minutes to talk about how great your sales team did last quarter, they're going to hear how you're talking. And if you talk more strategic and more like the CRO, or you're even talking like the CEO, guess what? You're going to be better positioned to be the CRO. Language and words matter, which means knowledge is critical. What do you think, Scott? No, I, 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 I'm glad you went down, uh, down that, that path. I thought you were going to go down a different path. Um, and Richard is, I think, trying to get a rise out of me because, you know, some of us get pegged as only being able to do one particular thing. And so much hiring is somebody who has done instead of somebody who can do. Um, and, and that part, you know, tends to, tends to fire me up and get me going. I want to talk to you a little bit about this CRO role though. And, and here's where I'm going with this. There's been a whole lot of chatter lately from people who are heads of marketing and recently heads of CS who all want to be CRO, who all think that they are better positioned potentially to own the entire, you know, customer journey and, and run all of revenue. And, and kind of replace, you know, the traditional path, even though it's a relatively new tradition, of VPs of sales becoming the CRO. How do you feel about, about that chatter and those three roles? And is any one particular discipline better posited to take on that role? Or is it really just more about the person and their skill sets and so forth? Um. Do you want the politically correct answer or my real no, answer? No, I don't want, I absolutely do not want the politically correct answer. I want the real answer. Okay. So first of all, I do think it's more personality attributes and experience than anything else. However, if you've never been held to a number, 
quarter after quarter, especially if you're going to be going public and being a public company, you're more likely to wilt under the pressure of quarterly numbers and the need to actually perform. So that's why I think a person who's had true revenue responsibility, which is more often ahead of sales than ahead of marketing, that actually thinks more like a business person first and a sales executive second, I think they're going to most likely be much more successful. But it's not the only path, Scott, but I think it's the best path. Now, I will tell you, I have personal experience where someone who headed up customer success and she was really good, one of the best I've ever worked with. Her dream was to be the CRO and she got the chance to be a CRO. After three quarters, she asked to give it back and go back to customer success. Why? Because mm-hmm. the expectations and the pressure and the yeah, stress the was mm-hmm. much greater than she had experienced running a services or yeah. success team. Yeah. What, w- one question that Richard and I were just kind of chatting about uh, on, on the sidebar here, and I, I'm hoping there's a, a less obvious answer, but maybe there's not. Why are these numbers so secretive? Why, why is it kept hidden? And, and in particular, like internally, right? Like they're not shared. There's no transparency. There's no, there's no, there's no slide typically in a company meeting that's like, hey, look at our you know, magic number. Look at our CAC LTV kind of ratio. Why? Because we are a very immature industry. We're an industry mm. that's 20 years old. Talk more about that. That's it. So, so I grew up at GE back when GE was a company you wanted to be associated with. They had a number one executive development program in the world. Um, and I was fortunate enough to go through that for about five or six years. And one of the first things they did, Scott, was in Richard, was they made us learn how to read an annual report understand what the letter to shareholders made, understand what working capital is, account balances. What like you got, you got actual training on that. You I got time. training on that. And by yeah. the way, and I'm going to, the biggest issue, and I'll, I'll get back to why don't we share these numbers more actively today. The biggest issue for me in SaaS sales today, B2B sales, we're doing a shitty job of training our earlier career salespeople and our sales leaders, especially at the first and second level on business acumen, how to read a 10K and a 10Q, right? How you're going to impact whether it's an operating profit or net income or earnings per share with your solution. Number two, people don't understand how to speak the language of their executive buyer. You need to understand what a chief marketing officer at a consumer packaged goods, what drives her. If you don't know that, how in the hell are you ever going to feel comfortable having a discussion with her to try to get your solution approved, right? The second thing I think we do a terrible job is training our salespeople about the industry that they're selling to, right? If you're selling into the automotive or discrete manufacturing industry, you should know how discrete manufacturers are measured by Wall Street. What are the the head of manufacturing's incentives? And then number three, we do an even worse job of teaching our sales organizations about what really matters in the SaaS industry. We talk about your quota. You got to make quota. You got to make quota. Link it to something more strategic and inspirational. The reason your quota is so important is it's going to drive our CAC payback period and our growth rate. 
if we can hit that growth rate, our company, instead of being worth 5X revenue, is going to be worth 8X in our next round. That means for your 10,000 shares, it's going to be worth an additional $80,000. We do a terrible job of teaching our salespeople the real important metrics of the industry and how it impacts their wallet. So I got another question for you. As a company goes IPO, right? Like the, the big ones we know lately are DoorDash and Airbnb. Can you find these numbers in their prospectus? Do these numbers exist? And, 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 and whether they do or they don't, why aren't they being talked about? Because it feels like this is the smarts, the simple smarts of like, if I understand what these phrases are, I know what these numbers are, and I know what my, the magic number is this. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd consider investing in that. Like, Because companies only share what they have to share from an SEC regulatory perspective. I read 35 10Qs in the last month, and these are SAS um, 10Qs. And a 10Q is a quarterly report for those people who don't know what a 10Q is. And net dollar retention, the thing we talked about earlier today, there were no fewer than seven naming conventions for net dollar retention, whether it was net negative churn, net retention, net dollar retention. And the calculation was in a footnote of how they calculate it. And I'll give you an example. One company, their calculation never takes away down sales and churn. How can you really calculate yeah. net dollar retention without calculating churn? So the problem is they're not FASB or GAP metrics. And until they are, they're never going to be standardized. Did that answer your question? That, made, that makes it really it makes it really hard when things are not standardized. It's impossible exactly. to compare. You can't compare one thing to the next. Well, and, and I'm, I'm not here to promote anything that we're doing, but think about now in private companies. You talked about why don't we talk about it? Number one, there's a lack of knowledge. There's not enough focus until you're ready to raise a round of money. I've talked to about 30, I think 31 or 32 private equity firms and VCs over the last year about this very topic. And like Ray, we never trust the metrics that the company gives us. We go in, we look at all the input data, such as the expenses, the book they are, and we do our own calculations because most of the CFOs even don't know exactly how it should be calculated. So we have a maturity issue. We really do. It's a great answer. And I, I'm just nodding my head. It's true because I've, I've been a part of all these raises and sure enough, the, the firms come in, they get access to the books. They do their own calculations. There's a, there's a disconnect or a Delta somewhere in the numbers and everybody's redoing the numbers and scrambling. You, you know, you know what else there's not, uh, you know, what else is never talked about in, in SAS or almost never talked about, right? Profitability. <laughs> you mentioned like, what should the goal of, of companies be? Nobody, nobody really talks, talks about that as the goal. The goals are always a, re a revenue goal, a retention goal, a fundraising goal, an exit goal. It's never to be profitable. Are we going, are we going to move that direction as the industry matures in the next 20 years? Will, will, it, will people 20 years from now be talking about it differently than we are today? Yeah, and, and there's a natural maturation to every industry segment from a public market valuation perspective. And it's all about growth. It's, if you're growing 40, 60, 100% a year, no one cares about net income, especially in this recurring revenue model. They care about two things. They look at gross profit and gross profit is revenue minus cost of goods sold. 
the average cost of goods sold for a SCAS company is around 25%. What that means is for every $100 million of revenue that you're generating, you generate $75 million of gross profit. So if you cut off all sales and marketing operating expenses, you could generate $75 million of cash every year. So the reason that people don't care much about net income and the recurring revenue model is because they know at any time they can reduce operating expenses and get to positive net income. But if you're booking $100 million of new business every year, ARR, and you have an 87% retention rate, so follow me, 100 million times 87%, that means 87 million will be here this year, the second year. The next year, you take 87% of that so you're going to have another 65 million. You can almost do nothing as far as investment and sales marketing, customer success. And over five to 10 years, you're going to generate a billion or more of cash. That's why they don't care today, Scott. Yeah. And that's why PE firms exist. They come in with a big hammer or a, or a hatchet and just chop, chop, chop. Because to your point, what do they do? They, and, and think about that. So sales and marketing as a percent of revenue. In most public, public SaaS companies, it's 40 to 50% of revenue is going back into sales and marketing to get new business, right? When a private equity company looks at acquiring a company and stuffing their product into their existing distribution model, you can eliminate 50, 70% of that acquired company sales and marketing expense, you automatically generate more profitability and thus more value. This fact, I'm over here taking all these notes because I have to put this into you know the announcement of everything we're doing, but um, my mind's blown because I don't get to this level. I've never gotten to this level in my career um, and certainly never was coached to it. Where would you go um, to, for people to go learn this stuff aside from, Hey, go download this episode. But you know, that's a, that's a captive audience at the moment. Uh, where else could they go to learn these things? Does anybody have a good teaching definition? Is there, you know, fundraising for dummies, you know, kind of a thing out there? Yeah, oh, it's interesting. Um, so there are some sites and I'll say learning curriculum that's evolving the SAS CFO just like it sounds, thesascfo.com, just has launched a site called SAS in 60. And he's got one to two minute videos on all these metrics. It's a great primer. It's almost like SAS KPIs for dummies. So that's one great place. We're actually, hopefully next week on the revopsquare.com site, we're going to be having about 15 similar kind of learning videos on these metrics. But more importantly, if you're a SDR or you're a AE, go into your CEO's office or CFO and say, hey, could I buy you a cup of coffee? I'd love to learn a little bit more about financial metrics that you use for a SaaS company. Number one, that SaaS CFO is going to say, oh my God, I got an SDR who wants to know about this shit. I love this person, right? And Someone number wants to two, talk to me. Do what? Someone wants to talk to me. Someone wants to talk to me, but more importantly, someone wants to learn. One of the things that people who have made it, kind of the SVP or C-level, 
one of the things most people want to do is give back. And they want to give back through knowledge and, and information sharing. And I think it's something that we as sales leaders need to encourage and set up those, let's have a coffee break with the CFO. Every place I've ever worked, I would have the CFO come in at the um, quarterly business reviews and talk about one or two financial metrics that he or she is really focused on for this quarter and why it's important. We can do it as head of sales. That's awesome. That's really great. Where can people get a hold of you, Ray? I mean, I, obviously they can get to, to RevOps Squared, right? Um, but where else can they get a hold of you? Yeah, definitely. Um, my email is rayreich at RevOps Squared. Um, I've been, like a lot of people, really trying to build more awareness through what we're doing on our LinkedIn profile. So it's Ray Reich um, on LinkedIn. And I'm also at, at Ray Reich on Twitter. And that's where almost every podcast, and once again, I'm not here to promote our podcast, but you know, we have been lucky enough to have the founders of LinkedIn, DocuSign, Marketo, some of the leading metrics thought leaders, like we mentioned Byron Dieter or Kyle Poyer at, for product-led growth at OpenView Ventures. Just by listening to these podcasts, you're going to hear things you're probably not hearing day-to-day in your company. Yeah. And by the way, I think you've earned the right to plug your podcast on this episode. I don't think Scott, neither Scott or I. Uh, in fact, we're probably going to say, hey, can you introduce us to them? Um, but that's been super, super valuable. Uh, we want to give a quick shout out and thanks to our sponsors, Vidyard, Lead411, and Gong.io. Um, and Ray, you know, our last question uh, for, for you is, you know, how can we help you? What can we do for you? Um, you know, we, we always like to give back to your point. So, we, you know, how can we do that for you? Well, thank you for asking that. And my biggest challenge is try to take a lot of these, what can be viewed as very complex and sophisticated concepts and bring them down where everybody can understand them. And the way that I would love to be able to do that is have your listeners kind of reach out and just say, hey, Ray, can you take five minutes, 10 minutes and tell me a little bit about why CAC ratio means something to me as an SDR? And I'll be happy to reply to every email or even put a small little post about it on LinkedIn. So, cause if they have that question, they probably a hundred other people out there have the same question. And maybe that's my way of helping our industry kind of mature together. And that's my ultimate goal is in 20 years, people can look back and say, not only was I a good salesperson, but I became a great business person because I started understanding and speaking the language of the SaaS business. Yeah, I think I think the key to that is not the individual SDR. By all means, they should, but you know those leaders, those team leaders should say, "Hey, can you come and join a Monday meeting? Right? Can I do some?" This it's from a leadership perspective. It's like, "Hey, if I have you come talk to my team, I'm in helping them invest in their career growth, which is good for them, which is good for me as a leader. It helps you recruit by saying, "Look, we bring in these kind of knowledge experts, right? And you and to a large extent." you might get something different than when you would get out of your CFO. So you could go ask your CFO something, right? So that it's not jaded to a specific way. So uh, Ray, we're happy to- That kind of brought a thought up and I know we need to wrap up, but I had this question for both Richard and Scott. We all know what quota over assignment is, right? Quota over assignment, meaning- Meaning you gave me a quota that's unattainable? Oh, (laughs) well- with only 50% of people making quota this year, that's true. But no, quota over assignment, every CFO and SaaS company does this. Let's say you need to get 10 million of new ARR. That's your goal for 2021. Quota is going to be assigned out at about 20% over that. So 12 million of quota is going to be assigned. 
Number one, do we ever tell salespeople that's happening? Yes, I do. I, do. I tell them, I tell them and better and, and more so I don't do the over assignment. I give them the actual real number. I have bucked the trend in this particular area and I've gotten a lot of flack for it, but uh, I, I, I understand that I'm a little unique in that department. Well, good on you because most CFOs and CEOs, they don't want the sales organization to know that yeah. we've just assigned out 20% more. And by the way, only 60% of you is going to make the quota we did give you. It's yeah. a freaking game that I hate. And that's why yeah. I think transparency starts from the CEO and CFO. And if they share all these metrics, they're going to have a lot more credibility, a lot more moral authority to ask for more. Yeah, Scott, you, want, you, want to, you, want, you want to shock a room of salespeople? Ray, the next time that you do a training or something, go into a room of salespeople, especially ones who are younger in their career, and say to them, how many of you think that our goal in setting quota is for 100% of you to be able to hit quota? And all the arms will go up. Everybody thinks that you know, we, everybody should be able to hit quota. And I'm like, yeah, newsflash, that's not true. That's not how quota is set. It's set in a particular way. So uh, I, I have been somebody who has railed against this practice for a long time. So it's very refreshing, Ray, for me to get a chance to talk to somebody like you who's uh, equally agitated by it. Scott, were you able to get your CEO and CFO to give you the real number? Or did you yes. know when you rolled up the number, they were going to add it and that's what they were doing anyway? No, they, 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 didn't, they didn't roll it up. So, okay. So they, yeah, so we got, we got, got the real number. They, they basically said, it's your ass. <laughs> That's I, what they I, basically said. And I said, yep, it is either way. So let me do it the way that I want to do it. And I will tell you, that's the key. You'll get it. You'll, if you push back, they may let you get away with it once. But if you don't hit your number, you're not going to get away with that twice because you're not going to be there to, to get away with it. That's right. Which I wouldn't be there to get away, which I wouldn't be there anyways if I missed my number. So right. there's no risk is what I thought. I'm dead either way. I got to hit my number no matter what. I love it, Scott. Yeah. Awesome. Ray, this has been fantastic, man. Like this is probably, I, I would put this up with the, do you have a PhD? Because if you don't, you should have one in this stuff. Um, but this he's is- He's just going to borrow, he's going to borrow one of his wife's degrees from MIT. That's what I was thinking. So. Exactly. You know what? I found out with Photoshop, I could actually change her name to mine. So we'll give that a shot. Awesome. So Ray, thank you again so much, man. This has been wildly interesting and educational and it's going to be one of those episodes. All right. I got to listen to this one like three more times so I can learn all this. Good so. selling guys. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Ray.